It was the 2005 Primetime Emmy Awards. Everybody Loves Raymond won that year for Best Comedy. J.J. Abrams lost one for uh, lost one for Best Drama. And also, this happened. Green Acres is the place to be. Farm living is the life for me. Land spreading out so far and wide. Keep Manhattan, just give me that countryside. Donald Trump shouting his way through a duet of the Green Acres theme song alongside an uncomfortable looking Megan Mullally. Don't ask me why. Nobody asked for it. Green Acres had been off the air for 34 years by that point. But still, it happened. And it was the weirdest, most unfortunate musical collaboration that Donald Trump had ever been involved in until today. Today, former President Donald Trump released a new song. Correct. A song. (laughs) Correction. A song. And correct. A song. The title is Justice for all. It features Donald Trump reciting the Pledge of Allegiance while the national anthem is sung by a backup chorus of January 6th defendants who recorded their part of the song over the phone from jail. I wish I were joking. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Trump dropped his new insurrectionist track today at CPAC, where the Republican Party's embrace of the January 6th rioters was on full display. One of the panels on the agenda for today's conference was titled The True Stories of January 6th, The Prosecuted Speak. The Wall Street Journal reports that some attendees handed out yellow ribbons meant to honor the people who were arrested in connection with the riot. This is what happened when a right-wing news outlet went to interview a man who described himself as a January 6th political prisoner. I was a January 6th political prisoner. I got out in October. This is the first time I was able to... Thank you, guys. It's the first time I was allowed to travel since January 6th, and I thought, what's a better place to come to than CPAC? What's a better place to come to than CPAC? Indeed. The Republican Party has now become the party of insurrectionist apologia. And it is not just in the fringy halls of CPAC. CBS News reports this week that a top staffer for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy recently met with the mother of Ashley Babbitt, the insurrectionist who was shot and killed by police as rioters tried to break into the Speaker's lobby on January 6th. McCarthy isn't alone. As CBS News notes in its report, other House Republicans have also taken meetings with January 6th supporters and relatives of defendants. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene said there is a possibility some defendants' relatives could be called as witnesses at an upcoming hearing of the House Oversight Committee. In other words, justice for January 6th rioters could soon be part of the official Republican legislative agenda. It follows Speaker McCarthy's decision to give exclusive access to over 40,000 hours of Capitol Hill January 6th surveillance footage to Fox host Tucker Carlson, who has downplayed the attack and aired a documentary, Patriot Purge, suggesting the whole thing was a false flag operation. 
House Republicans have also declared their intention to provide that footage to January 6th defendants to help them in their criminal trials against the Department of Justice. Elsewhere on Capitol Hill, the GOP ties to the January 6th rioters is causing complications for the party. Right now, Republicans' new subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government is desperately trying to find FBI whistleblowers who will come forward and accuse the agency of wrongdoing. But CNN reports that several of the potential whistleblowers who have yet to come in for interviews were suspended from the FBI for being at the Capitol on January 6th. And the witnesses who Republicans have managed to bring in are not in much better standing. The New York Times reports the first three witnesses to testify privately before the new Republican-led House committee appear to be a group of aggrieved former FBI officials who have trafficked in right-wing conspiracy theories, including about the January 6th attack, and received financial support from a top ally of former President Donald Trump. Joining us now is California Democratic Congresswoman and former member of the January 6th committee, So Lofgren. Congresswoman Lofgren, thank you so much for joining me this evening. There's a lot to talk about, especially given your extensive and exhaustive work on the January 6th committee. What's your reaction to the witness credibility issue that the new Republican-convened weaponization of the federal government committee, um, the witness problem they seem to be having? Well, I'm not on that uh, committee, as you know. I'm on the Judiciary Committee, uh, but I did have a chance to read through some of the uh, uh, Congresswoman Plaskett's report, um, and it looks like they've got some uh, very sketchy witnesses who are not whistleblowers. They tried to qualify as whistleblowers and failed to. They don't know what they're talking about from the testimony. And they're conspiracy uh, theorists. Um, you know, if, if this is what the Republicans are going to embrace, uh, hang on for a wild ride. I mean, who thought? that we would be at a time when the leaders of one of our major political parties was openly endorsing and embracing criminal conduct. I mean, the January 6th defendants, most of them have pled guilty to a crime, uh, violent crime in many cases, attacking police officers. Some have pled guilty to sedition and they're embracing them. What is wrong with them? I, I mean, I think a lot of people feel the same way. There's also the issue that some of the witnesses that may be called here may be on the payroll of former Trump associates. I'll read an excerpt from The Times reporting. Two of the witnesses both testified they had received financial support from Cash Patel, a Trump loyalist and former high-ranking official in the former president's administration. One witness said Mr. Patel sent him $5,000 almost immediately after they connected in November 2022, and that Mr. Patel has helped promote his forthcoming book on social media. Can you contrast this with the way in which the January 6th committee vetted its witnesses and whether or not you ever entertained calling someone to testify who was taking money from an outside political group affiliated with either the president or one of the opposition groups focused on the uh, former president? To my, my knowledge, we never did. And we certainly uh, made sure that that was the case. In addition to the cash payment from Patel, I understand that one of the witnesses was uh, provided employment with the Center for Renewing America, which is basically uh, partly funded by Donald Trump's big con, uh, the online money that he raised, and also helped uh, establish a position for Mark Meadows, who's up to his neck 
in uh, the seditious conspiracy. So this is uh, very troubling that these are people who were not uh, dispassionate witnesses. In fact, if you read through, I haven't read the whole report, but some of it, it looks like mo- in most cases they weren't witnessed to anything. They just have an opinion, and their opinion is they believe in uh, conspiracy theories. Yeah, they they had you know previous law enforcement ec- uh, experience and are avowed anti-FBI or anti-government uh, activists at this point. I, I do wonder what you think of the open embrace beyond just this committee, the weaponization of the federal government, but among House Republican leadership, the open embrace of January 6 insurrectionists, the idea that Kevin McCarthy and James Comer, the Speaker of the House and the chair of the Oversight Committee, met with Ashley Babbitt, one of the insurrectionists' mothers, the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene, again, who sits on the oversight committee, says relatives of the January 6th defendants may appear at oversight hearings. I mean, do you think the new focus of the Republican-led House is going to be, quote unquote, justice for January 6th rioters? Well, I don't know what they're doing, but I will note that uh, Speaker McCarthy recently said that the officer uh, who protected the uh, evacuating members of Congress at one end of the hallway uh, when uh, this poor woman who was believed, I guess, what Trump said was breaking into the other end of the hallway, that that officer was just doing his job. Obviously, it's tragic that this woman was brainwashed and lost her life. Um, But as Kevin McCarthy said, that officer was just doing his job. Uh, And uh, that now somehow that would change is weird. I do want to correct what I said earlier. It was an aide to Speaker McCarthy, one of his top staffers who met with Ashley Babbitt's family. But I mean, there is the question of what the speaker has done in terms of the narrative around January 6th and his what appears to be his active attempt to undermine the facts as we know them in terms of what happened that day by giving 40,000 hours or access of to 40,000 hours of footage to Fox News and specifically Tucker Carlson. Um, that has then in turn led for some of the defendants lawyers in the January 6th trials to say, our clients need access to those tapes as well. We need to see what Tucker Carlson is seeing effectively. We have some breaking news on that front, which is that a federal judge a few hours ago denied one of the January 6th defendants request to delay her trial in order to review thousands of hours of security footage. That's the footage I'm talking about that Kevin McCarthy has made available. Um, the judge said that the lawyer had failed to explain why any additional footage of her movements inside the building would be exculpatory. Do you think that the I mean, you're a lawyer, <laughs> you know the body and you're not a judge. I understand that. But what is your expectation about people other than Tucker Carlson getting access to the footage and specifically as it involves these defendants in these January 6th insurrectionist trials? Well, there's something called a Brady motion. And what that does is it requires the prosecution to share with the defense all their evidence. So any video that the prosecution has has to be shared with the defendant. Uh, now, in some cases, judges have said the defendant can have it, but because there are security concerns about releasing it publicly, uh, the defendant can use it for their defense, but not uh, disseminate it. But th- so there's nothing that, th- that the prosecution has that hasn't been shared under the Brady motion uh, scenario with the defense. And I think what the judge, you know, I was didn't hear uh 
the court ruling, but it looks like uh, the judge made a finding that this was a, just an effort to delay the proceedings uh, because anything the prosecution had has already been made available to the defense. Yeah, it sounds like the judge was concerned that all the other defendants would want to delay their trials by months, if not. I mean, we're talking about four years worth of footage if you watch it end to end. So it would have a sizable impact on moving these trials through the courts or moving these cases through the courts. I do have to ask you about the point we find ourselves in. If we look at the totality of what the Republican Party is doing vis-a-vis January 6th, it now looks like it's not just an effort to undermine the efforts of Democrats to hold uh, those accountable, accountable, uh, those in, in charge of the insurrection, if you will, accountable. It, it's, it's become something much more nefarious, which looks like almost an open embrace of a group of people who actively tried to undermine democracy that day and potentially would like to do so again in the future. And as someone who worked so tirelessly to show the American public what happened that day, to get to the bottom of what happened that day, how do you feel about the efforts of your colleagues in Congress to do not even the very opposite, to, but to, to, to actively set us on a glide path towards the erosion of our republic and the erosion of, of democracy writ large? Well, whatever they're intending, their actions are undercutting the rule of law and um, the embrace of of crime is really a shocking thing. Um, you know, these uh, defendants committed criminal acts. Uh, you, you know, you can spin it however you want, but take a look at the video that the January 6th committee showed after clearance from the Capitol Police. Uh, in terms of security. And you can see this mob uh, attacking viciously the Capitol Police who bravely defended us. And because of that, we barely avoided a much more serious bloodbath. You know, at the time, uh, Kevin McCarthy on the phone to the president, we know from other witnesses, uh, told the president, these are your people. These are your people, Trump. And for now, uh, some of my colleagues to try and pretend it was otherwise is frankly jaw-dropping. California Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, thank you so much for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. Thanks. We have a lot to cover tonight. What was once the place for conservatives to see and be seen is now more like a late-night infomercial. Plus, new reporting about how the special counsel's investigation of the former president and other top members of his administration has turned into a race against the clock. We'll have more on that next. At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say. It's what we do. Our professionals believe in the value of collaboration and the power of technology. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference, driving growth and value for our clients. KPMG, make the difference.
When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Earlier this week, the Washington Post dropped a bombshell report detailing just how close federal prosecutors were last fall to making a decision on whether to bring charges against former President Trump over classified documents found at his Mar-a-Lago beach club. The Post shed new light on the infighting between FBI agents and DOJ prosecutors, how it delayed the search of Mar-a-Lago and resulted in Trump announcing a presidential run before any charging decisions were made. That announcement, the presidential run, in turn resulted in the appointment of a special counsel to the Mar-a-Lago case. Today, new reporting from The Post reveals that special counsel Jack Smith is now focused on Trump's lawyers as he races against the political clock in his concurrent investigations into Mar-a-Lago and the January 6th insurrection. Smith's pace appears to be quickening as the 2024 presidential election starts to take shape. Trump so far has two declared Republican opponents, Nikki Haley and activists Vivek Ramaswamy. Legal experts say that if Smith brings criminal charges against Trump, those charges would likely be pending when the GOP primary debates begin in August. Some of Smith's biggest obstacles here are witnesses central to both the January 6th and classified documents cases, including former Vice President Mike Pence and former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, both of whom have said they will refuse to comply with the special counsel subpoenas. A number of Trump-affiliated lawyers, including Evan Corcoran, are also fighting the special counsel in court. The Washington Post reports that the legal battle with Corcoran, as prosecutors seek his testimony, could be settled in two to three months. Joining us now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama and co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Joyce, thank you for being here. I just, you know, we talk a lot about when we're going to see something from Jack Smith, and it, it becomes evident in this new reporting we have today that the clock is a concern, at least to those who are watching this all play out in real time, if not the special counsel himself. Um, these legal battles that the special counsel is engaged in with people like Mike, Mark Meadows and Mike Pence, what's your expectation about how much that could delay any potential charges and carry us into full-on presidential election season? Right. So it's unpredictable. We don't know how long the courts will take to rule on any of these disputes over when witnesses will testify. But one thing that we do know is how Jack Smith is likely to handle this. He comes out of the public integrity section in Maine Justice in Washington, D.C. A big part of that unit's work is public corruption cases. And when you're doing public corruption cases, whether it's a senator or a mayor or is now a former and future hopeful presidential candidate, you're always aware that there's a ticking clock that impacts your election. You always have to be thinking in terms of how to move your case forward so you can make the decisions that you made to make need to make before you hit into the next election cycle. This is something that Jack Smith has to be acutely aware of, given his background. 
Do you, can you enlighten me as to how we square the reporting that the charging decisions in the Mar-a-Lago case were imminent? This is the reporting we have from the Washington Post. Then Trump announces he's running for president and this, the case is basically sent over the special, special counsel's desk. Does he start from the very beginning? Where does he pick up the case vis-a-vis where the prosecutors that initially had it left off? Right. So you do on occasion pick up a case from someone else. The special counsel situation, I think, is is the most publicly familiar example right now. But you can have uh, situations where a conflict of interest develops and a case is, for instance, transferred from one U.S. attorney's supervision to another. And you don't start over from scratch. For one thing, you have a group of agents who will typically travel with the case, sometimes prosecutors. And in this case, we know that Jack Smith was able to bring on board some people that he had worked with in the past. So you have a team that has a significant understanding of what's going on in the case. You take a look at that, you make your assessment, and you keep going. If that reporting is accurate, that they were very close to making prosecutive decisions before the case was transferred to the special counsel, It doesn't seem like the sort of thing, particularly in the Mar-a-Lago case, that would significantly slow him down if the only thing that was involved was getting up to speed on on the evidence. Okay, so that was October. It is now March. Are you going to infer anything about a timeline for Mar-a-Lago if this reporting is correct? Well, you know, I I think that you're obviously raising the point from the article. Is there more internal squabbling? We we now know from this reporting that there was a delay in executing a search warrant, in part because the agents had some concerns. And it's unusual when it's the agents who are slowing down a case. Usually it's prosecutors who are saying, look, we don't have enough evidence. I'm going to have to go into court one day and face a federal judge and a jury and prove my case beyond a reasonable doubt. I need more before I'm ready to go. It's not the usual situation where the agents are saying we have concerns about going in and executing a search warrant. So we don't know if there's more internal concerns within the team about getting this last bit of evidence that they need. We do see a lot of public indication of witnesses who are unwilling, who are fighting subpoenas. And Jack Smith will have to find a way to deal with that. Either you go without those witnesses or you continue those battles, perhaps in regards to the January 6th case he's looking at, while the Mar-a-Lago case, once you deal with the Evan Corcoran situation, the lawyer there, you're pretty much ready to go. Yeah, let's talk about the lawyers, as we mentioned, Evan Corcoran, which the, the Washington Post reporting we have from this afternoon, this evening, um, talks about the way that Jack Smith is focused on Trump's legal affiliates, if you will. Um, I'll read an excerpt from it. The investigative activity highlights one of the ways in which the Trump probes are unusual and complex, turning some of his many current or former attorneys into witnesses or potential investigative targets. A Trump spokesman said the legal strategy was a sign of weakness in the case against the former president. Do you think it's a case of weakness? You know, Alex, I read that and it's absolutely not a sign of weakness. It's so rare to go after the lawyers. For one thing, it's a high legal barrier. You have to have sufficient evidence to pierce the attorney-client privilege. In essence, you have to have evidence that shows that the client and the lawyer are working together to achieve criminal goals. And that doesn't happen very often. 
I think that's a strong signal here that the special counsel believes he has the evidence to work his way up the chain. The goal here has to be to get to the witness who can say the former president ordered us to tell DOJ that everything had been turned over when, in fact, it wasn't. That would be the sort of the smoking gun evidence in this case. Corcoran, who appears to have been the lead lawyer on this case in direct communication with Trump, would be someone whose testimony you would want if that was your goal. And at the same time that some of these lawyers are being mentioned as either possible witnesses or potential investigative targets, they're still meeting with the former president to talk about the case. That has got to be making lawyers who understand the way the law works cringe from the sidelines. Does it not? Would it not, Joyce? You know, anytime you offer someone who's involved in a case the opportunity to choose whether they want to be a witness or a defendant, and they continue to engage with the people that are part of the alleged criminal scheme, it's in some sense a sign that they have made that decision, right? They've decided that they want to be a defendant, not a witness. With lawyers, it can be a little bit different. But once a lawyer makes that decision that they want to be a witness, or at least they want to cut their criminal exposure and cooperate in exchange for a deal, they're no longer involved with their former client. They have to walk away. So what we can read into this here is that they haven't made that decision yet. They perhaps don't believe that special counsel has a strong case against them, or they're just not there yet. Not to mention the potentially uncomfortable position they're putting their client in on a potential witness tampering charge. But we'll leave that discussion for another day. Joyce Vance, it is always great to see you. Thanks for your time tonight. Nice to see you, too. When we come back, one of the nation's largest drugstore chains caves to pressure from anti-abortion groups. Plus, campaign stop or infomercial. When it comes to Donald Trump Jr. and his fiancée, is there actually a difference? We'll have more on that next. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. For years, the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, has been one of the premier conservative gatherings in the country. If you wanted to be taken seriously in Republican politics, going to CPAC was basically a requirement. This year, though, the conference feels more like an infomercial. Instead of 
supporting woke companies who hate you and use your money to further their political agenda. So go to Kim's Metals, it's kind of catchy, .com to learn more. That's kimsmetals.com. That was Kimberly Guilfoyle doing a special live from CPAC version of her show. You may know Guilfoyle as Donald Trump Jr.'s fiance. You may know her as a former Fox News personality. You might even know her from her $60,000 fee for a two and a half minute speech on January 6th. At CPAC, Guilfoyle used her time to promote Mike Lindell's pillows. There they are right there. And to urge retirees to invest their retirement funds in precious metals through her promotional website where she gets a cut. If that sounds kind of grifty, Take a listen to Donald Trump Jr. again at what used to be one of the premier conservative gatherings in the country. So if you're going to have a phone, you can give your money to AT&T and watch it get weaponized against everything that you believe. Or you can go to Patriot Mobile. Like, it's that simple. Amazing part about the cell phone service, Patriot Mobile, that Don Jr. is hawking here is that the whole premise is to stop spending your money at woke cell phone companies like AT&T or T-Mobile or whatever a woke cell phone company is, and instead give it to a Christian conservative carrier. But here is the thing. The Christian conservative carrier doesn't have its own national infrastructure, so it just rents excess capacity from woke cell phone companies like T-Mobile and AT&T. So its customers are basically owning the libs by paying Patriot Mobile, which then just pays the woke cell phone companies that Patriot Mobile claims they are the alternative to. Anyway, you can use the code Don Jr. for free activation. What I'm saying here is this is not the CPAC of the past. So my question is, what is it actually? And what does CPAC tell us about the modern Republican Party? Is it just one big grift? Joining me now is longtime Republican strategist Mike Murphy, who advised Republican candidates, including John McCain, Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney. He is currently the, a co-host of the Must Listen podcast, Hacks on Tap. Mike, thank you for being with me this evening. Um, there's no better person to talk to about this. Uh, I guess let me just first. Well, get, you know, what a topic. huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, drift. when you think of the George Santoses and obviously Donald Trump with his ties and his vodka and his steaks and even Alex Jones with his vitamins or whatever he sells. The conservative movement in the year 2023 does feel like an infomercial. And I wonder how much you think the big con, the grift is central to the party's identity at this point. Well, uh, Alex, first of all, I join fellow patriot Donald Jr. in urging our listeners, the true patriots out there, to make a check today out to Christians Against Secular Humanism or cash. Because this is a grift, pure and simple. They ought to put a fence around CPAC and put a bunco charge on all of them. It's unbelievable. I didn't know God had an opinion about cell phone companies. Um, yes, what's happened is Trump is shrinking in the party and CPAC is shrinking. Uh, but it is it, it is kind of the professional grassroots huckster wing of the GOP. So the good news is it, it's, it's, it's an outlier. It's not the sampling it used to be. Hell, when I, I was chairman of the College Republicans at Georgetown a million years ago, right after Reagan got elected, we'd go there and it was the best party in town. Uh, and it reflected the young energy inside the Republican Party. This thing now is a scam. 
Well, pure and simple, top to bottom. Walk me through how that fits, though, in the ecosystem of the present-day GOP. There's a there's a competing confab, the club the Club for Growth conference, where I think Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence right. and Nikki Haley they're all speaking. That's kind of like the legit conference. Uh, but when you talk about the energy and enthusiasm, yeah. I mean, CPAC may be a clown show that is offering you know nine ninety nine gold coins or whatever. But at the same time, there it, it does represent some certain part of the GOP, does it not? I mean, it does does it not represent the most animated part of the base <laughs> that is therefore essential to those who would like to keep power over at Club for Growth? Well, it, it's a sliver. What it is is a grassroots party, uh, the hoot and holler, uh, but it's what I call the hobbyist wing of the right wing. The, the Club for Growth thing is a donor club. That is, that, that is a meeting of people who can write $100,000, $500,000 checks to your super PAC. So the candidates will break down the door to get in there and kind of do their 10 minutes. They're scoping for significant donors or bundler, bundlers. The CPAC thing, CPAC now is like the 25 Japanese troops in a cave somewhere in 1953 waiting for the emperor to tell them to attack. They're, not, they're, a, they're a subsliver. Now, they, they vote in primaries. I won't zero them out completely, but if you look at a scientific poll of Republican voters and you poll, the, if you can get the aluminum foil hats long enough to get their attention and poll the people running up and down the hallways hawking this stuff at CPAC, you know, there's not a lot of correlation. It is a symptom of the weakness of the Trump thing, not the strength that he owns this shrinking island. I got to ask you um, what you think the ideological center yeah. of the Republican Party is at this point, because when I think of Club for Growth, I'm thinking these are the moneyed Republican elites who really care about low taxes. And when I think about the uh, political figures who speak at CPAC, it's kind of the grifter class. But money is the central thing that ties it all together. Is it? I'm just trying to understand what the Republican Party is actually yeah, about, well, if anything, at this it used to always amuse me as a regular Republican that the grassroots would rant about the establishment. You know, many people like me, but the the anti-establishment has its own establishment and their trade show is CPAC. Um, as far as the party, it's got a lot of factions. Right now, the biggest war is between kind of the populists and there are rich populists who love to write super PAC checks. Uh, all the way down to grassroots, really grievance populists who are worried about space lasers and think Marjorie Taylor Greene ought to be empress, all the way over to kind of more thoughtful populists. Then you got the old Burke conservatives like me, which were kind of the dominant conservative faction in the original, you know, not completely crazy Republican Party. And there's a struggle. Trump is the poster child of the grievance populists. And that's where the fault lines are now. Some of the money is with him. Most of the money is, God, we're tired of losing. We're tired of crazy. Uh, this guy's a problem. Can we get back to free enterprise, strong defense, the basic Republican building blocks? But they don't control the party now. It's a, The primary is going to sort this fight out between all the warring factions. They're still using T-Mobile. But then so is the insurrectionist wing as well. Anyway, we have to leave it there. Mike Murphy, my friend, thank you for your time and wisdom, as always. Thank you. We have still more to come tonight, including more on the Florida college students we introduced you to last night who are fighting back against Governor Ron DeSantis' assault on their school. We have an update for you on how that's all going. Plus, the latest on the fight to preserve access to medication that has come under attack from anti-abortion foes. Stay with us.
You could see them rolling through Jackson, Mississippi on Wednesday, and then Montgomery, Alabama, and Baton Rouge, and New Orleans later this week, and Texas after that. Mayday Health, a nonprofit group, has been traveling through 14 states that ban abortions, targeting college campuses with their mobile billboards. They say they launched this campaign to make sure people know, despite what these 14 states may say, that people who want abortions can get them in all 50 states by mail. That's because the Justice Department still says that it is legal to mail the two pills used for medication abortions across state lines. The Mayday trucks come complete with QR codes that direct people to resources about how to get abortion medications sent to restrictive states. As the fight over abortion access shifts gears from surgical abortions to the method used in more than half of U.S. abortions, which is pills, advocates and residents of restrictive states are finding new, innovative ways to fight back and spread the word that the battle isn't lost yet, even though it seems increasingly uphill. In Texas, where pretty much all abortion is legal at any illegal at any point in pregnancy at the risk of a felony, one lawmaker is trying to take things a step farther. State Representative Steve Toth recently introduced a bill that would ban websites from advertising or selling abortion medication. The bill specifically calls out Plan C, Hey Jane, and Aid Access, all groups that help people access abortion pills, kind of like what Mayday Health is doing with its QR code. This proposed Texas bill would also let individuals sue the people who maintain these websites. These sorts of bills are usually challenged in court, but not before they frighten state residents. And at this point, the protracted and splintered fight over reproductive health care isn't just freaking out people. It's scaring companies, too. Just yesterday, Walgreens announced that it would no longer provide abortion pills in 20 states, even though in some of those states, access to that medication is still legal. In January, the chain said it would sell abortion pills through its retail pharmacies. But when a group of 20 attorneys general wrote to the company to threaten legal action, Walgreens reneged on its plan. The attorneys general told Walgreens that they were just trying to uphold the law and protect the health, safety and well-being of women and unborn children in their states. Joining us now is Irene Carmone, senior correspondent for New York Magazine, who closely covers American abortion law and politics. Irene, it's great to see you. Thanks for being here. I'm sorry. This is where we are as a country and what we're given to talk about. But, you know, what was your what is your thinking about Walgreens decision and how likely do you think it is that this pressure from these state attorney generals, attorneys general is going to make, you know, pharmacies like I think CVS, Albertsons, Rite Aid, Walmart, Costco, Kroger cave to the same kind of pressure. So to put it into context, this is an enormously safe medication. Yeah. It's been studied over and over again. In fact, uh, it is 18 times safer for a person to take the abortion pill than it is to give birth. Okay, it's generally safer to have an abortion than to give birth, but it is even more so to take a medication abortion. But in fact, until now, you haven't been able to get it at pharmacies because abortion and everything around it is regulated in ways that don't have anything to do with medicine and have everything to do with politics. So when the Biden administration tried to enlarge these possibilities, in part recognizing that access is so much more complicated, trying to make sort of more avenues, given that a third of the states have banned abortion, um, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. Yeah. We know they've already made clinics a hell to yeah. walk into. Yeah. We know they've shut them down in all of those states. And so now even the prospect that people might be able to get an abortion pill without having to wait weeks anxiously to figure out if it's going to get there through the mail, because we know the mail is complicated mm-hmm. and not everyone has a stable address. Um, 
they don't necessarily feel comfortable walking into an abortion clinic. So lest anyone access an abortion without shame, anxiety, stigma that has nothing to do with medical necessity, that's where these AGs come in. And so they are trying to bat down any attempt by the federal government to make people's lives easier when they're trying to access this procedure. And terrify those websites, if you will, that or, or scare them into effectively shutting themselves down, I guess, that are trying to help people access the, the medical, uh, the, the medication that they need. I mean, the idea that you would prevent a website from being available to women in states like Texas, yeah. it feels like we are not in America anymore, that we are having restricted websites when women are in medical emergencies. Absolutely. You know, a lot of these websites actually started because they recognized where things were going. Yeah. They saw that there was a danger. They saw that there was an access problem. Now, they, these U.S.-based websites, they only work where abortion is legal. Then you have aid access that works in states that are not illegal. They're yeah. overseas. So it's a complex picture. But it's sort of what anti-abortion people recognize is they can't read everybody's medicine cabinets. Mm-hmm. God, they wish they could. Yeah, or their they mailboxes. They could. Yes. They, if, and you can also, this is an important thing to note, you can get this pill without being pregnant if you get it through one of the online pharmacies. And so some people are stocking up in advance because they don't know how this access picture is going to change. And so this Walgreens move needs to be seen in the context of them trying to sort of shrink the possibilities that somebody could get the care that they need. Yeah. What do you, I mean, we're waiting for the the Texas ruling from Judge Kaczmarek, uh, which could shut off access to mifepristone across the country. Yeah. The other abortifacient pill, misoprostol, is, is used technically for ulcers. It is, it would be harder to ban that as well, but it is used for abortions as an off-label use. And I wonder if you think if they're successful in banning mifepristone, is misoprostol next? Is the option of medication abortion basically taken off the table for American women? So I think that's a protocol that's used in a lot of countries. Um, it's not going to cover every single person who needs an abortion. Yeah. For example, if you need an abortion later in pregnancy, medication is not going to help you. Right. So I think even though these are game changers, it's always good to remember that not everybody is going to be able to get the care they need this way. Um, in terms of, you know, one of the things we're really learning since Dobbs is that you can't really take abortion out of general medical care without harming a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. So these are drugs that that are sold, for example, in Mexico. You can get them over the counter. They're ulcer medications. Yeah. Um, if you are having a miscarriage, if you are, um, in some cases, having an induction, these are pills that are used in all kinds of contexts. There's, no, there's nothing that says, like, this is for the bad women and this is for the good yeah. women, much as the anti-choice would like to kind of segment that. And so I think that they would face a problem if, like, let's say that this makes its way up through the courts and, you know, Judge Kaczmarek, who came from the Alliance Defending Freedom, does what everybody thinks he's going to do, but also it has to get upheld and the administration has to interpret it and so on. Um, More and more people are understanding that you really can't disentangle abortion from other kinds of medical care and and that it winds up punishing people in all kinds of medical situations. Who have nothing to do with any of it. Irene Carmone, it is complicated and it is um, ongoing, shall we say. Uh, it is great to see you. Thanks for your time and your great reporting on the topic. Thank you. We have one more story for you tonight, an update on the fight students at New College in Florida are waging against their governor, Ron DeSantis. That is coming up next.
Last night, we brought you an exclusive report from New College in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis's handpicked trustees have used their majority on the public college's board to fire the college's president and eliminate its diversity and equity programs. And they are just getting started. I spoke to some New College students who are organizing in response to all this and seeking support. This is an attack on our education, a hostile takeover of our education. But we are strong. We are a strong, resilient community. And the students have come together, and we're coming together um, to launch a new organization, um, a statewide, nationwide, um, hopefully, organization to fight back against DeSantis' political takeover of our classrooms. The organization's goal is to raise $250,000 for their grassroots effort, and they have already raised more than $192,000. A big chunk of that came in via their website, savenewcollege.org, after we brought you their story last night. We have even more to bring you from my conversations with these students and their parents and their teachers on our show next week. But for tonight, that's it for us. 